Good morning. It's been a while since you've been in this little arrangement. Um, this is cool. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, it is the 4th of July, and I felt like um, I did want to address that. I realize it's, I don't know that I've ever, I can remember a Sunday that, or a 4th of July that fell on a Sunday. And I was looking at my calendar, and I went like way back. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I, it's just like a weird thing. It's an interesting time to approach a holiday like 4th of July as an American, as a follower of Jesus in this time of reckoning. And so I just want to take like three minutes and just say, um, there was something that Pastor Rich Velotis, who's the pastor of New Life Fellowship Church in Queens, that we've just um, learned a lot from in terms of our discipleship content, in terms of our pursuit of multi-ethnic community. He put something really helpful up. He said, um, and of course he's using generalizations here, but he said there's, there's kind of four types of Christians on a day like the 4th of July. One type uh, wants to just celebrate America on a day like today, doesn't want to critically evaluate our history, wants to express pride and patriotism and honor what's good and great. Another type of Christian um, only wants to look at what's bad and what uh, the ways in which America has not lived up to its ideals is very critical of our nation. It's interesting. He puts a third category in there that, uh, that I think is relevant to a community like ours, and he said is, is especially relevant or, or especially prominent in a church like theirs in a place like Queens, is uh, he called it the, the grateful immigrant Christian who has an experience of another nation and came here because of the promises and ideals um, and, and has, by and large, a very positive view of our country. And there's a fourth type of Christian that he calls the apathetic Christian, who doesn't really think about these things, who doesn't think critically about what it means to be both an American and a follower of Jesus. And uh, I love what, what he wrote as kind of a, a summary. He said this. He said, I'd like to submit... Um, and so would I, if I may borrow his words here, that on the 4th of July and generally we need non-dualistic Christians who are able to see both the gifts of American life and the deeply troubling legacy of American oppression. We must be able to say yes and no. By God's grace, the non-dualistic Christian is able to move beyond idolatry and anger. They're able to transcend fear and apathy. The non-dualistic Christian is one who is prepared to engage holidays like the 4th of July with moral and theological clarity. They are not bound, listen to this, by the forces that constrain us into taking sides. We should all say amen to that. In short, they are able to say things like, our country is not perfect, but I'm grateful for the good that has come forth. About, right, that's, that's about as, as thoughtfully engaged with a day like this as I can imagine us being. And so if you would join me, um, I just want to pray into those things. Father, um, we do thank you. We do thank you for this nation and for the ideals of this nation, God, and um, the ways in which it has been uh, a force for good in our own lives and around the world. At the same time, Lord, um, we want to, especially as your people who have a higher calling, who have a higher identity than that of American, we want to be able to say um, and, and grieve uh, the, yeah, the, the fact that this nation has not lived up to its ideals in all times and always and for all peoples. And so, God, we lament that. We sit in the grief um, of a nation with the kind of history of racism and division and oppression that this one has. Um, 
And yet, Lord, as your people, we also don't want to stand outside of that. Lord, um, because we, we, we repent for the ways in which, uh, God, we participate in that. Um, and so, Lord, uh, give us hope, uh, not in a nation, Lord, but hope in you. And then commit us to be people who, as our core identity as a church says, who would seek justice and mercy. Um, Lord, who would participate in the best of what makes this nation uh, worth celebrating and participate both in prophetically calling it out and holding it to those standards, but also participating in making this um, a better union, uh, as our forefathers said, Lord. Um, God, not because uh, of, of anything less than the fact that you have called us to be a distinct people in this world, um, and not just for one nation, but for all peoples, for all nations. Uh, and so, God, remind us on a day like today that as much as we celebrate the independence of a nation, there is a far greater freedom that we find joy in. There is a far, even as we're praying this morning before the gathering, um, Lord, that there is a far greater awe that we experience um, in the freedom and the independence that we have in, in you. And Lord, we long for a day when freedom would be fully experienced, that day when we see you face to face, that day when you come and you turn over all injustice, you make all things new. Lord, we long for that ultimate independence day. Um, so God, today, yeah, I pray that we would be a, a people who celebrate, who are with neighbors and friends and all those things, but who also have as... Uh, Pastor Velotis says here, the moral and theological clarity, Lord, to hold tension on a day like today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. With that, let's turn to Hebrews. Um, as you heard, uh, I chose an entirely too long passage for today. If you're thinking that's a lot of ground to cover, um, whew, I agree. Uh, so we got work to do here. So we are just gonna we're just gonna jump right in uh, where Amar left us off last week is really important to understand its connection because probably some of the verses in this passage are familiar to you whether you realize if you're familiar with the Bible or if you've been around Christian things for any amount of time are probably familiar to you but maybe not within the context that they appear here. And so let me just read where Amar left us off last week and show you how it so naturally flows into chapter 11. I'm going to start at verse 35. The, the preacher, the pastor here is saying to this group of weary um, Christians, this group of Christians that, as we've been saying from the beginning, seem to be ready to bail on their faith. He says the following, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, listen to verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And the natural question, or at least one of them, that arises from that statement is, well, what is faith? He's been talking a lot about faith throughout this letter. Now he's going to define that. And so two basic movements in this passage this morning. One is to define uh, faith, define what we mean by faith, what faith is, 
And then what he's going to do in the rest of this chapter, many of you will know this chapter, Hebrews 11, as maybe the hall of fame of faith, maybe the roll call of the faithful. It's known through various ways. But what he's going to do is he's going to tell us what faith is, and then he's going to use all of these Old Testament examples to say, this is what faith embodied looks like. This is what faith looks like in various circumstances of life and at various times in the history of the people of God. And so I want to spend a lot of our time on the first two verses of this chapter um, and make you a little nervous of how are we going to get through the last 14. Well, we're going to fly through them is what we're going to do. Uh, So listen to this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I want you to look at that yourself. I want your eyes on your Bible or on your phone. Hopefully your phone has a Bible on it. Um, uh, yeah, there you go. And I just want you to look at those phrases. Do those phrases jump out at you like, oh, I get it. Assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. To me, I kind of pause like, what? Like, what, what is the assurance of things hoped for? It seems like circular. It seems like weirdly circular. It's like, the assurance, being absolutely sure of something that you hope for. It's like, well, which is it, right? Like, is it you're hoping for it, or is it like you're, you're absolutely certain of it? There's, there's a lot going on in the original language here, and this is one of those few times I want to pull out a little bit of the Greek language on you and suggest that this might not be the most helpful translation of some very complex wording that's going on here. If, if I could, if I were so bold as to suggest that I should be a Bible translator, um, which thankfully I'm not, but I've done enough work on this text to feel pretty good about what I'm about to say, I would prefer something like this. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now, if you're familiar with the old King James, that's what the King James translates. And this is one of those times the King James, way to go, gets it right. The substance of things hoped for. The word that's used there is a Greek word that speaks of the nature, the essence of something. You might remember way back in, in the first couple verses of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God of the nature of God. That word nature there, the essence of who God is, the substance of who he is, you see fully in Christ. Same word here. So interesting that they would call that assurance. It's the substance. It's the essence of things hoped for. And then the conviction is a pretty good word of things not seen. The word that's used there, it's actually a more popular word than that, than that assurance word. The word conviction here in every other place that it's used in the New Testament means something like proof, means evidence that's brought forward to prove something. And so if you, if you would, um, if you're a writer in your Bible, um, which I give you full pastoral permission to do, I'm a big writer in my Bible, I would love for you to circle the word assurance and write somewhere substance. Above it, below it, in the margin. Then I would love for you to circle the word conviction, and I would love for you to put the word proof. Which isn't that much clearer, but let me just walk you through this. Here's here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And first, let me tell you what faith is not. Because this is a word that's thrown around a lot in culture and in Christian circles. Faith is not being really, really sure that things will 
work out the way that you want them to in your life. Right? This is the one of the ways that we use faith. That if you just have faith, whatever bad circumstance you're going through will turn out all right. Now, there is an incredibly nuanced, beautiful, biblical version of that. But the definition of what good is has to be rooted here, not in what your definition of that thing working out is. But this is a very popular way to use faith, even in Christian circles, is faith is being really, really sure that your life is, is going to be comfortable, secure, prosperous because of God's goodness. And you bring God a little bit into it. That is far more connected to the faith of the health and wealth gospel than it is to the faith that Hebrews is talking about here. So it's not that. It's also not mere belief in a specific theological uh, system. It's, it's not mere mental assent to a statement of propositional truths about God, about the world, about human beings. This is, again, how a lot of us use faith, is, oh, I'm a person of faith because I mentally ascend. If you gave me a list of things, is Jesus God? Yes. Um, did God create the world? Yes. Are human beings sinful? Yes. That, therefore, I'm a person of faith. No, you have some beliefs, but you're actually not exercising biblical faith until those beliefs are put into some kind of action. What the author of Hebrews is going to define for us is the kinds of actions that make belief and mental assent to some propositional truths that make those into faith. And if that sounds a little edgy, because maybe you grew up and, and we said, no, faith doesn't, isn't about works, faith isn't about deeds, listen to the letter that we just got through in James, where literally the author of James says, if you say you have faith, Show me your faith by what you do, because that's what I'm going to do. I will show you my faith by what I do. I think that that is lockstep with what the, the pastor, the preacher, is saying, and frankly, lockstep with what the New Testament is saying. So it's not mere belief. Faith also is not a leap into the unknown. There's another way that we use faith. Is you're, you're, you're a person of faith because you believe crazy things on absolutely no evidence, and you grit your teeth your entire life, and regardless of your experience, you just continue saying, no, 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 I believe all that stuff is true about God. That's where this word substance comes in. That faith has substance. It's substantive, to use a big word there. It has, it has content to it. It has experience about it. Finally, faith is not mere sincere devotion. It's another way that we use this, especially in wider culture, is I'm a person of, right, I've had people say this to me. They find out I'm a pastor and they say, I'm a person of faith also. And what's, what's, the, what's the appropriate question to that statement? Yeah, what kind of faith? Faith in what? And often what it is, is Something very different, <laughs> I'll put it that way, something very different than, again, the biblical content of faith. This is why I think one of the dangers of this passage is oftentimes verse 1 is ripped out, put on signs at home goods, as though no matter what the faith is directed towards, that doesn't matter so long as there's a sincere devotion to those things. And so 
Faith is the substance of things hoped for. So what do you hope for? If you really believe that those things, right, like the the popular athletic chant right now, I believe that we will win. That's faith. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not faith as defined here. The conviction of things not seen. Well, what is it that you're trying to manifest into the world, right? Like this isn't as popular now as it was 15, 20 years ago, but this whole idea of manifesting things by believing them, by taking things that don't exist right now, the, the beautiful new red bike that you want, and manifesting it to yours. That is not what faith is here. There are very specific things because we've spent five months, y'all, we have spent five months defining what this specific writer means by the things hoped for and the things not seen. So the first thing that faith is, is it is defined biblically. And specifically here in Hebrews, you can't just say, well, what do I hope for? As long as I have the substance of that, whatever that means, we haven't talked about that yet, then I have faith. No, no, no. The things hoped for are the things as have been defined by the first 10 chapters of Hebrews. What are the things hoped for? The things hoped for is the renewal of all things when Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, who is sitting right now, ruling and reigning because he was the ideal human being sent by God to stand in your place, to suffer the death that you and I deserve, that he now reigns and rules on our behalf over all things, waiting for that day until all his enemies are put under his feet and the last enemy to be put under his feet is death. And when that day comes, all creation will be renewed. The, the dead will be risen and judged and some to eternal life and some to eternal punishment. That is what we hope for. So what does it mean to say that faith is the substance of that? That faith is the essence of that. This is an experiential Word. This, this is a word that speaks of, of the experience of the essence of something. What it's saying is that when faith is properly exercised, you begin to taste of that which you ultimately at a soul level hope for. In other words, faith is the means of activating what stands ahead of you in that future day. Relationship with Jesus. Full sanctification. Justice seen to the four ends of the earth. It's the beginning taste. It's the, to use Paul's language for this, it's the down payment of that. It's the trailer to the fuller movie that you're hoping to see and experience one day. It's saying that what faith does is it begins to give us the substance of what lies ahead of us. You see that? So the first thing that we can confidently say that faith does is it looks forward. It looks forward to that day. That is the, that is the first direction that faith has, is it deeply understands what the hope of the Christian, what the hope of a follower of Jesus does, and it sets our eyes there. And as we then respond in faith to the things of God, we begin to experience here and now the substance, the essence, the nature, the whiff, the, the, the glimpse of what we hope for. Okay? See that? And we'll see that in the examples that are given. The conviction of things not seen. Now, what are things not seen? Is it the new red bike that you've been hoping for? No. The things not seen are all of this crazy stuff that we've been talking about, about what's going on in the realm that God rules over now, namely heaven itself, where his rule, well, he rules over both realms, but where his rule is completely 
uncontested is how I want you to think about heaven. And in heaven now, remember, Jesus, our high priest, our sacrifice, goes into the heavenly places with the sacrifice of his perfect life on our behalf and now stands before the Father, is, is, is not only reigning and ruling all, all, over all things, but he stands as your priest, as your representative, as your go-between, as your mediator before God and says, in the everyday circumstances of riches life, in the everyday circumstances of Michelle's life, God, would you be active and moving? And God says, but why should I care about people like them? And Jesus says, because they're mine. They're with me. They've identified themselves with me. These are the unseen things that faith is the proof of, that it's evidence for. In other words, when the individual follower of Jesus begins to live by faith and willingly confesses sin, confesses brokenness, confesses weakness, do you see how that's proof that they have a good and enduring high priest operating right now in the unseen realms on their behalf, making them beloved of God, not by any merit of their own, because they're confessing that there's no merit of their own, but solely by the merit of their good and enduring high priest. You see how that's proof of the things not seen? Do you see how it's proof of the things not seen when a Christian begins to lay down old idols, old pursuits, old ways of primarily bringing identity and meaning into your life, and you lay down the pursuit of perfection, you lay down the pursuit of success, you lay down the pursuit of the next promotion, the next promotion, the better house, the more secure, whatever it is, and you begin to live for other people's good, you begin to pursue actual joy and generosity in the mission of God at great expense to what the American dream would tell you your success and joy is wrapped up in? Do you see how that's evidence that there's stuff beyond this world that actually matters more than how this world would call you to live? That's what faith is. That's what faith does. It gives us a foretaste of what's out ahead of us. It proves to the world that the stuff that we say is happening that isn't evident without the eyes of faith, without eyes that perceive beyond the everyday of this world, with eyes that see into spiritual things. Great pastor John Piper uses the example of, of Magic Eye. Remember when Magic Eye was huge back in the day? Um, he uses that to say that what faith is, is faith is the ability. Like in, what do you have to do in Magic Eye? Do you remember? kind of have to look like through the image. You got to like somehow get your eyes through what's actually there on the page. And then all of a sudden it's like, the bald eagle shows up, right? Um, and you're like, where did that come from? It's because you're looking through. It's because you have a different kind of vision that you bring to that. That's what the eyes of faith do. They look beyond what's seen. And they see the movement of God in the everyday. They see the blessing of God in the good stuff of life. They go on vacation and find the blessing and kindness of God there, not just the just rewards of one's labor. They look into the hard stuff of life and they see the gentle hand of God that is near to the brokenhearted. 
rather than his apparent absence. See, the eyes of faith perceive things different because they're looking through the circumstances of life, and it becomes proof of that which is not seen. And by it, the people of old received their commendation. This is one of my favorite biblical words, is this word condemnation. It's one of my least favorite biblical words. (laughs) Commendation. Commendation. Oh, and I could preach a whole sermon. Oh, yay, yay. Um, Commendation is what we all most long for. I think of this uh, as very synonymous with with the language of vindication. Don't you want to be vindicated? Don't you want someone to someday say, like, they were right about everything? Right, like from the small stuff to the big stuff, like they were right. The Yankees are a superior organization to the Red Sox, and the Red Sox are pure evil. Booze, guys, we're in New Jersey. Like, come on. But right, like from the small, guys, that was the small stuff example to the big stuff, right? Like I wasn't crazy for believing that a man was dead, then wasn't dead anymore, and he's the Lord of the universe. What you long for one day. Now, the, the stuff that doesn't matter, that'll be burned away. The stuff that ultimately does matter. There is coming a day when God will ultimately vindicate this kind of life. We'll say those who lived by faith looked crazy to the eyes of the world. They weren't crazy all along. They got it right all along. That's commendation. That's soul level vindication. And he says a life lived That way is moving towards, has a trajectory towards the commendation of God himself one day. But there's a trade-off because in order to get that, you've got to trade that for the commendation of this world, of our culture, of your friends, and sometimes of your close family members. Because it's so much easier to live for the commendation of now. But what Hebrews is longing to tell us is commendation now is a trajectory towards the opposite. It is a trajectory towards one day standing before that Lord of the universe and him saying, I never knew you depart from me. And so it's trying to say to these early Christians going through impossible things, trying to say to some of you going through impossible things right now, don't trade it. The language of reward is used here. I love this, right? Like everything in life is, uh, is about, is the cost worth the reward? And the author of Hebrews is unabashed in saying, the reward is greater, though the cost now is high. And the cost of instead choosing reward now is so infinitely greater than you realize. And he's at pains to tell us that. So what does faith look like? By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. Basically, faith begins... By the way, we're going to go chronological here. That's what he's going to do in Hebrews 11. So he's starting right at creation. He's like, fundamentally, you got to believe that this world, that there are things beyond what we see, that the things that we see and touch is not all there is. That's foundational belief number one, that the things that we can see were created by things that we can't see. It all starts there. By faith, Abel, verse 4, offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, though he was commended, uh, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel, pretty wild story. Uh, Abel of Cain and Abel. Abel's the brother who ends up being killed by Cain, his brother. We're not really told in that story why God accepts 
Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. But the clear suggestion is that it's not just about the, the content of the sacrifice brought. It's, it's the heart that brings that sacrifice. This is the clear teaching of Scripture all the way through. Like what you bring doesn't matter as much as the way in which you bring it. And so there's something about the manner of life that Abel had that, that was pleasing to God. And what the author of, of Hebrews is doing here is he's reasoning out to say, if, if his worship was acceptable to God, then his life must have been in step with the things of God. That's why God accepted it. And he's saying, and though his brother killed him, he was the one who received commendation from God. This goes with, with the next one, an even weirder story. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. You know how many verses Enoch gets in the Bible? How many verses this story gets? Two. It's like Enoch lived. Enoch had a son. Enoch walked with God. God spared Enoch from death. Enoch was no more. And he was not found is, is the language that's picked up here. Whole story of Enoch. What I love about that is we don't need to know at the end of the day anything else about Enoch other than he walked with God. In all of the little mini episodes of his life, in all of the the many seasons of life that he went through, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters about Enoch, cosmically, ultimately, I'll use a big word, eschatologically, and all the way to the end, is he walked with God. And it seems like this whole thing where God, uh, God only does this a couple times, so don't expect this, but God just like lifts him out of human experience. He doesn't have to go through physical death, it seems like. What seems to be going on there, most commentators agree, is Enoch's faith at that time, living in step with the realities of God, was so utterly out of sync with the surrounding culture that it seemed like God was like, all right, ultimate grand prize, like triple bonus points, gold star, you're not going to have to die. Like that seems to be, as silly as it is, that seems to be what, it was so unique in those days by, by how we figure out how those genealogies were. It seems like God was like, holy, there's only, and, and this happens, in, especially early in the biblical narrative, there's like one person, like one faithful person. And what this is saying is that an entire life lived, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters about me or that matters about you will be, did you walk with God? Did you walk with God? That's it. What I love about these two stories put together, Abel and Enoch, is do you see that the outcome of their lives, the result of their faith by worldly standards and experience could not be more distinct. How does Abel's life end? He is murdered by his brother. Like, that's crazy stuff, kids. Earmuffs, right? Like, that's all, that, that is a tragic horrible, violent way to go. How does Enoch's life end? Like he's chilling and then he wasn't found because he just like straight up beam me up God, right? Like the outcome of their lives is not the evidence of whether or not they had faith. Both had faith. One's, One's outcome of their life was wonderful and prosperous and the ultimate gold star. The other by all appearances was cast away, was forgotten by God. God did not seemingly protect him from his brother. Instead, in the story, the one who gets protection is Cain. 
where you're at, and let me say this to you, and let me say this in your evaluation of other people, how someone is doing by worldly standards, whether someone is happy and joyful or sad and despondent, is not a measure of how faithful that person is, how faithful they have been. The outcome of life is not what faith is defined by. There is a faithfulness that knows profound joy, that knows long seasons of prosperity, that knows long seasons of life going beautifully, wonderfully well. There is also faithfulness that knows the pit and that sometimes endures the pit, not for days, not for months, not for weeks, but for years. And yet faith can live in both places. And faith has and will always live in both places. Why? I don't know. Which would I choose? The one that you would choose. But that does not mean that God is unfaithful in those places and can't. And here's the crazy thing is often we say, well, it's got to be harder down there to have faith. You talk to some people who have been in the pit. They say, no, there was a nearness of God. I wouldn't choose it again. They'd still choose up here. But there was a nearness of God. There was a with, there's an awareness of my dependence on God that lived down there that I just can't touch up here. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I'm in verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Here's that reward thing. Essential to faith is, do you believe that ultimately God is a rewarder or that God is a punisher? Right? This says not only do you got to believe that God exists, that, that's, where, that's where it starts, that God is. I love how he, how he puts it there and whatever that is, verse 4. Now he says you got to believe that God is good. <laughs> you got to believe that his intentions for you are ultimately cosmically good. That's essential. And this is what many of us will wrestle with for years of our lives. Is at the end of the day, you might believe that God is conceptually, hypothetically good. But, but is he going to be good to you? Is he going to reward you for the little mustard seed choices of faith that you make throughout your life? Or is he waiting for you to do more before he will give you anything of himself? Other crazy thing about this is it says, without faith, though, it's impossible to please him. Do you know what that means on the other side? This is something that Jen Wilkins says that I love. She says, the other side of this verse, though, is with faith, What? If it's impossible to please him without faith, with faith, what? It's possible. <laughs> you can please the heart of the creator of the universe. He can go, look at them. He can go, look at my dean. Look at what he's doing. He's choosing to live by faith. He's taking the hard way. He's giving of himself. Confessing sin, repenting, forgiving. And it delights him. This is where the two come together. Because you want to please one that you believe is wholeheartedly for you. Right? Maybe you had a coach, maybe you had a teacher, maybe you had a parent who is so utterly and totally kind and good and gracious towards you that you knew that there was nothing better in life than bringing a smile to their face. Is that how you see and experience God? As the one who, when you please him, goes, about time. About oh, what, I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be, you know, bald over? been like four weeks oh you prayed today wow good for or is he one who delights in little acts 
Who, can you see a smile on God's face when he looks at you? That's what faith produces. We're just going to keep going. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. There's our word. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he, here's, here's my least favorite word, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by, by faith. Crazy story, right? Noah, God shows up. God's like, it's going to be a great flood. Probably should build a boat. Probably should have a family in the boat. Noah's like, cool. And like months, years go by. My man is building a boat in the middle of the desert. Like, just think of, now some of you, what's the movie? There's a movie about this with Steve, Evan Almighty, Evan Almighty, right? Like, it does a pretty good job of depicting, like, this is, cra- this is not someone building a ship down at the dock. And you're like, how's it coming? And Noah's like, pretty well, can't wait for it to be seaworthy. No, this is insanity. This is like middle of, guys, I've never really been in like the plain states, but I've seen pictures. This is like being in the middle of Iowa or something. And you're building like this ocean liner. People are like, what are you doing? And you're like, just wait for the water to come, right? It's crazy. Why does he do it? Because God told him to. Simple as that. Simple as that. It's one of the only stories in the entire scriptures where you get someone that God tells them to do something crazy and they don't argue. Noah's like, cool, I'm down. You say it, I'm doing it. And in so doing, it says, he condemns the world. Because what we clearly get in that story is that everyone around him is saying exactly what you and I would say. But what are you doing? Like, this is, are you sure? Like, sure you're good? You need to see somebody, you need to talk this out, maybe. See, he condemns the world because the voice of God is infinitely more important than the opinions of others. See how that, that only comes by faith? It only, that, that's what faith produces, is it produces evidence of the things not seen. You know what Noah's evidence? You know what he could point to at the end of his life if God was like, I don't know if you had faith. If you were Noah, what would you point to? I'd be like, bruh, like, I, like, right? We should all have arcs in our lives that we can point to. Here, here's where this whole thing lands. If there is nothing about my life, if there is nothing about your life that makes absolutely no sense apart from the voice of God, then we should tremble a little bit. But one of the things that I want to say, I'm speeding a little bit to, to where I thought I would end. What I want to say to you, Jacob's Well, this morning, I'm your pastor. What I want to say to you is this is not, now some of you need to wake up, need to wake up and say the voice of God is speaking into your life. You are not taking the preaching of the word. You are not taking engagement with the word seriously enough. It's been a long time since you've built an ark. It's been a long time since you've done anything in your life that makes absolutely no sense apart from your faith that Jesus Christ is who he said he was and is reigning and ruling now. There, there is very little evidence in your life that you are looking ahead to that which you hoped for in, in the most ultimate sense and that your life is arranged by that rather than arranged by maximizing current comfort and security. And if that's you, wake up. Here's a beautiful thing. You have a gracious Savior. You have a gracious high priest who doesn't tap his toe when we come back and we say, it's been, right? Like in the Catholic Church, they ask you, how long has it been since your last confession? Right? Like 
That's not Jesus' first question. And I'm, not, and I'm not bagging on the Catholic Church. But that's not his first question to you. He says, you're home. Remember the story of the prodigal son? What does he do? He runs. He takes off. That's what he will do. And he'll say, you just got to start listening. You just got to start putting one foot in front of the other by faith. But to many, many, many of you, I want to say, I, I, I started to write down some things. There's faith in this community. There's been faith this last year to endure what you've endured. There's faith in the midst of difficult circumstances with children and with marriages. There's faith in people living generously for others rather than entirely for self. There's faith in people making courageous decisions that are against their own career advancement and that are actually for the good of others and people in their own community. There's faith arising as people embrace neighbors who are not like them in 6,000 ways and yet they say, God has put me here so I'm going to love them as best I can. Be encouraged, Jacob's well. As the pastor does here, there's, there is faith present. What you have need of is what he says you have need of. You have need of perseverance. You have need of resilience. You have need of me. You have need of the word of God saying, keep going. It's worth it. On the days that the entire world around you will say, it's not worth it. You're building an ark in the desert. Here are the, the exceeding promises of God. Know that the unseen realms are real, that Jesus really is standing over you, praying for you even, even now, interceding for you, forgiving you fully when you come to him in repentance. Keep going. Keep going. Love this quote by a great Hebrew scholar. To live with the grain of God's promise is inevitably to live against the grain of the world as it is. It is to sing a song that won't harmonize with the present world's controlling melody to the great annoyance of the rest of the choir. But it will prove to have been the right song, the song on which they depended in spite of their refusal to join it and the only song that will endure. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of the heaven, and as many as the innumerable sands, grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Do you hear that? The things promised are not this worldly things. The fact that you feel like life is not going the way that it should is a common experience of the faithful. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, what a beautiful image. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and, and exiles on the earth. Christians are always to be people who are not particularly comfortable in the systems of this world. Who always feel just a little bit homesick and a little bit out of place. Even though we love and engage this world with everything we got, it ain't home. That's how we live. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. I love that. On 4th of July, we have a better country than America. Praise God that we long for. That's a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
great African-American preacher. He died a couple years ago named James Earl Massey. He summarizes these verses about Abraham this way. He says, All the faithful are persons of their time, but stirred by the forward look. Love it. They're people of their time, but they're stirred by the forward look. They're seekers, impelled by what is yet to be, encouraged by what they anticipate. They all sense that the meaning of their days would be clarified in time and vindicated by God. True faith is characterized by a forward look and an openness to the pull of the future that God has planned. Let me, let me just give you a, the, the best summary of this passage that I found, and it's very small on my phone. Faith is confidence. I just lost it. Faith is confidence that results in action carried in a variety of situations by, I love this, ordinary people in response to the unseen God and his promises and commands with various earthly outcomes, but always the ultimate outcome of God's commendation and reward. Confidence that results in action carried out in a variety of circumstances by ordinary people, with a variety of earthly outcomes, but always ending with the commendation of God. I'll end by saying this. The temptation is always for faith to look inward, to say, do I have faith? Do I have faith? Am I a faithful person? But do you notice the direction of of, of the vision of faith? It has two directions and neither of them are inward. One is forward, to the things unseen. One is saying that I intend to live to get to that day. I intend to endure so that on that day I get my commendation. And that means often sacrificing my commendation today. The other thing that it does is it looks upward. It looks into the unseen. It looks to the high priest who is interceding now. Where it doesn't look is at oneself. Where it also doesn't look is around you at the present circumstances of your life. To say, am I a person of faith? Well, how's my life going? Well, life is hard. God must be mad. No, 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 no. This passage could not more clearly say, do not evaluate even your own faithfulness by the measure of your present circumstances. You see, faith looks forward. Faith looks upward. And in both directions, you know what it's ultimately looking at? Jesus. It's saying, Jesus stands before me. He is the one whose voice I most long to be commended by. And it looks upward and it says, Jesus, you are also my resource now to get there. You are also utterly and totally and completely committed to me getting there. So you've got to be my resource today. You've got to be my sufficiency today. You've got to be my courage today. You've got to be my forgiveness. You've got to be my cleansing. You've also got to be the voice of clarity that tells me, what do I do today? Right, like so many of you, and maybe this is most hidden, so many of you are struggling with what is faith because you're just not listening to the voice of the one who defines what faith in your specific circumstances is. And if you would listen long enough, if you would believe that this message today, not my voice, but the voice of the scriptures through what I'm saying is actually Jesus saying, this is your opportunity to live by faith. I have a friend who you will hear from next week, Chris Radonovich, our director of care. And he is constantly, when you ask him why he's doing a thing, he says, look, at the end of the day, I'm doing it by faith. I love that. He said it 
thousand times to me, bro, you just got to do it by faith. He's very black and white. And so he'll often say to me, you got to do it. And why do you got to? Because you got to do it by faith. You got to do it with the provision that right now is available to you. You got to do it with prayer. You got to do it with the Spirit's presence. But you also got to do it believing that one day God will say that wasn't crazy what you did, even though right now my own counsel, maybe the, the safe counsel of others around me says, no, that's crazy. That's too much. You don't want to do that. No, 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 I want his voice. And so it's his resourcing now. It's his commendation out ahead of me that allows me to put one step in front of the other and say, no, I'm going to choose to do this by faith. And my prayer for you this week is that you will find the voice of Jesus so nagging in your life that you would say, oh, this is one of those opportunities. Because here's what happened. Here's what happens. When you actually listen to his voice and say, I'm going to do this by faith. This seems crazy. This seems out of step with what I would naturally do. This seems out of step with what my coworkers would do, what my family members would do. But I really believe that it's what God has asked me to do. It's pretty clear in his word that this is what he expects of me. Here's what happens. It becomes the substance of what you hope for. You taste that commendation. You taste a well done, good and faithful servant. It becomes the proof, not only to a watching world, it becomes proof to yourself that, whoa, maybe Jesus is real. You ever had this experience? Eventually, say you've walked with Jesus faithfully for any amount of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was really hard, it was really scary, and then I did it, and it was like, oh my goodness. I could sense that Jesus was with me in it. And then I said, maybe I do believe this stuff. You ever had that moment? You do something by faith and you go, whoa, Maybe I really believe that Jesus is risen and reigning and ruling even now. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The proof of things not seen. May faith arise in this place. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that this is both simple and utterly and totally profound. But Lord, my biggest prayer for myself and for these dear, dear, for this family of God, for these dear brothers and sisters. Lord, speak to us. Show us where you are asking us to step out by faith. And Lord, when we do, I pray that it would be this. That it would be the substance. It would be the taste. It would be the glimpse of what we're longing for. That it would be the proof even to our own hearts that the unseen things are ultimate reality. Lord, even now as we receive communion, I pray that these things would begin to churn in us in the holiest kind of ways. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and share communion now. Um, we are not... <laughs> if you want to know the answer,